everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. I'm James and back with me today, I have my co-hosts Jessica and Henry. Welcome guys, how are you doing? We are just off the back of a Google event, so we all got in, rolled in very, very late. Henry, a train to Bristol and and all sorts of interesting stories on that. But yeah, we are we're tired today, aren't we, guys? So we're gonna we're gonna crack through these stories and uh, <laughs> go to bed. I think I have an adrenaline hangover. I mean, arguably the best kind, but I am exhausted. <laughs> I've spoken to a lot of really great people, but it's a lot of people. But last night was really quite something. I have a I have a, a sugar hangover from drinking loads of Sprite and then. Getting a train. I say Sprite, it was it was San Pellegrino. I was gonna say Henry, like stop trying to be a man of the people. We all know that you're not. I'm 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 the Jarvis Cocker of healthcare. Um <laughs> right. oh dear. But what an event, eh? Like it, it's awesome doing that event at Google, Google's office obviously incredible. And talking about biotech, um, which kind of rolls us into our first story that we want to talk about, which is something that Jason addressed on stage really well, I thought, Jason being the founder of Ori Biotech. And we talked about this this shift in the biotech space from traditional biotech, which I kind of described as, when I think about biotech, I think about new medicines, biologics, what I suppose in the industry called single assets. So this process where you end up with a drug, a thing, and a business built around that. And there's this shift in the biotech space seemingly into what they are calling, I say they, there's a blog which Jason passed around um, where it's described as tech bio, the technology that's actually contributing to the building of platforms or making the engineering better or you know, data science, computer science, and all these things then coming together to build these platforms that can actually help in a kind of one-to-many model and multiple assets and things like that. I may well have butchered that completely, but Jess, I know you've got a view on this. You've been uh, working with Ori Biotech and doing a lot of stuff for biotech. So, um, yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I think it's a really interesting concept in this kind of transition from the focus, as you say, on the, the single biologic or you know even therapeutics who actually are the platforms the platforms that are creating the technology behind them and not just that you know is developing them but also taking them to commercial scale and therefore making you know what can be in some cases cu- curative treatments way more cost effective and available to a lot more people and i think when you look at something like cell and gene therapy which is where ori biotech are focused you know, the, the the cost price of a therapy that has data that proves that it can cure cancer in, you know, some people is upwards of £2 million, stretching even as far as £5 million. And so when you, you, we think about the scale of the issue of cancer and, you know, the potential, by the way, for cell and gene therapies scales way beyond cancer. There are so many other conditions that could benefit from it. You know, we're... The, the number of people and the families that could benefit from that treatment is massive. But the actual people who are, is there's such small numbers that it's just, that is, that's what's fueling a company like Ori Biotech to really make that change and, and see through, I guess, this transition from, 
okay, we've got all of these really amazing treatments and therapies. Now, how do we actually make people benefit from them? And that's the thing that I I personally find exciting because, you know, the science is very, very cool, but it's now making that science accessible. And I think uh, something that, you know, Joanna talked about yesterday in the fact that, you know, they're, they also have a platform and they're working very hard to bring the science and the platform together to provide a compelling product for, you know, biotech um, in epigenetics and, and understanding the impact of the environment on gene expression and all of that kind of thing and actually what we do with that data. Um, and one thing she said actually that I found incredibly exci- insightful, I, ho- I think it was Joanna, she said that, you know, we talk about, I'm probably going to credit Joanna, I think it might be Jason. One of them said, uh, you know, investors talk about data as the new oil, but actually data itself is not valuable. It's what we do with it and what can come from it. And I thought that that was just a really interesting point of view and, and slightly different from the way we think of data. And actually data is the lever here in this transition from biotech to tech bio. It's it's taking all the data that we previously had that's perhaps existed in paper notebooks and paper files and making that useful and actually creating impact with it so that patients and, and people, first and foremost, are, are benefiting and living longer, healthier lives. Um, I think that is so exciting. Awesome. Yeah, last night was really key point of discussion. Um, really enjoyed it. I think there's a great blog on this, um, which is in Health Tech Pigeon this week. Click on it, read all about how we are possibly in a second iteration of biotech to becoming now tech bio. On to story number two, health tech's biggest seeds. Henry, you love put, you love putting these in, health tech's biggest seeds. You've got this, uh, I, I was going to say, it's not an inferiority complex, is it, against fintech, but you enjoy beating them. Uh, I don't know, you tell me, but our friends Psyomics are in there. There's an, another one in there for health tech. So, we're doing all right at seed level. I think again, there's this narrative, isn't there? We talked about last night the this this you know Y Combinator announcement, investor market of doom. People are still raising seed. It's still happening. Whether this was done before or not, I don't know. But you know, friends at Sarmix and others are, are announcing raises. Um, talk to me. Health Tech's biggest seeds. It's a hundred percent a massive inferiority complex. <laughs> Every month, FinTech beats HealthTech. And the last couple of months, I think this is two in a row, maybe three out of the last six or seven, we're sort of getting there. And obviously, it makes sense that FinTech gets the most money, right? Like, it it, it just does. But to get 180 million euros of investment, seed funding investment, or like seed and A funding in June, which is uh, like 41 million euros more than fintech got last month uh it's great like i remember the first time that health tech was the top rated tech to get seed funding i celebrated by sending um mean tweets to monzo and payment sense <laughs> and now it's getting regular like, i just can't do that anymore but it's amazing like as you said you mentioned Siomix 2.4 proxy did 6.7 sana did like 7.4 everything genetic which is which is i'll be honest is a cop out of a name they did 5 million. Uh, Pill sorted <laughs> did 4.7, 4.8, something like that. So like, these are really great raises in a market that we're constantly being told is on fire and we should all be sort of selling everything we own because we're going to be living off beans for like the next two years. So it's good to see that health has become more of a priority for the investment markets. That's yeah, naturally, that's going to make me happy. And my wife works in fintech, so I get to gloat a bit. 
(laughs) Very nice. Very nice. So not to want to bring it back to last night again, because, yes, we did have an event at Google HQ last night. And, yes, it was really good. But a lot of the conversation last night was about exactly this. Well, not actually, it wasn't about exactly this, but it was around investment and, and fundraising, all of that kind of thing. And I think, you know, part of the beauty, actually, of that event is that it is Chatham House rules, though we're now repeating everything I said in the room. Sorry, everyone, breaking those rules. But, you know, it is very honest and, and people do share their, their very truthful, um, their truthful opinions on things. And, you know, Jason painted quite a stark picture of what, uh, fundraising is like right now and also the considerations that founders need to have not just if they're raising but also if they're thinking about raising at any point in the future and I think you know it, it's interesting to see how I guess the contrast with the data like this that's showing us that money is coming through but also how founders and startups and health tech companies are feeling um and I guess in in part that is down to, you know, the way it's perhaps being talked about and obviously why Combinator and, you know, the narrative that, that they've shared. Um, but I also do wonder whether there's something about the fact that, you know, what we're catching now in terms of those raises is sort of the tail end that w- was leading into this downturn. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see what perhaps the next six months looks like, because I think that will be when we start to see the full impact. Um, but interestingly, Tina Town, editor of First Web MedTech, she um, published an article, I think this morning or yesterday, that uh, showed that for the first half of 2022, deal flow was up year on year, so from last year, but the total dollars invested was down. Um, so... It is interesting that, you know, maybe maybe that's a trend that we're going to see more of where more, you know, we're not actually going to see less, less a, a lower number of raises. It's just that the value of them is going to be lower. So perhaps they're shorter term raises um, that, that we'll see to kind of get people, I say people, organizations, companies through this bit and support their growth during this downturn. And then, you know, perhaps when we come out the other side, things will look quite different. Um but what she also said was that it seems like uh, investors have kind of tempered down uh, the the trends that we were seeing where the, it, it was as if we were kind of just putting a lot of money out there, but making more considered transactions and looking at what, and I thought this was a really interesting phrase, taking more modest and realistic valuations um, and so I, I wonder what that says about, um, you know, valuations of not these companies um, necessarily, but just, you know, where we had this real boom of investment and this, you know, real great period of time. What she's saying there about valuations of companies and, you know, we've seen several companies going to IPO and that kind of thing on certain valuations. But uh, yeah, I'm just interested. What What do you think about that? One thing that I've heard a little bit is the phrase necessary correction. And I think that probably relates to what you've just said about valuations, perhaps volume of deals, perhaps amount raised, perhaps, because I think that's all an equation. And when you reduce the amount of money available, something's got to drop, whether it's the amount you put in them 
whether it's the volume that you do, but one of those things has got to go, if not both. And so I have heard that, okay, the moth, the, the market's been a bit frothy and a lot of people have been getting money. Health has been popular. People that don't know healthcare and health tech have been investing in healthcare and health tech. So perhaps the right companies have not been getting money and the wrong ones have. I've heard a lot of that. I've heard a lot from people involved in regulation that people are getting investment that are never going to be able to sell their product. And how has that got through due diligence? And so tighten the purse strings and perhaps more questions do start to get asked and perhaps the volume of deals gets lower, perhaps so much lower that the number could be higher. I don't know. So yeah, I think it's a fair analysis. And I think the the phrase necessary correction is being thrown around. I'm not sure what my view is. I don't think I know enough about it, having not been sat on that investor side of the table in any great volume. So it'll be interesting to see it play out. I do think the raises that we're seeing now are probably the result of uh, fundraising done before these announcements were made. And I think we might just be catching the tail end of a normal volume of raises the next six months will be interesting to see what that volume is and i think to henry's inferiority complex in fintech looking at how we're doing in compared to other sectors will remain interesting and so uh yeah keep putting it in henry is what i'd say right the third story this week Blood tests, that is reported by Sifted, by the way. Blood test startup Aware raises $15 million seed round. Seed round? $15 million seed round? Wow. That is a heck of a number. Um, so they have emerged from stealth, and what a phrase that is, with $15 million of seed financing in the coffers reading directly from sifted here as it looks to roll out its private beta to patients in germany so what do they do well there might be a few unwelcome reminders here for people that have uh, watched any of the recent programs on uh, a certain uh health tech or biotech company but they are hoping to be a one-stop shop for patients to get a detailed snapshot of their current health condition put together by analyzing a sample of blood drawn at a lab. They can get the results within an app in 24 hours and then retest every three to six months as part of a subscription to nip diseases and chronic illness in the bud and normalize regular testing. So is it in a nice box that sits on the shelf? I don't know. But what did catch my eye was the size of this seed raise. When you see a, a, someone raising seed funding of 15 million, my question is always, what is the quality of the founders? Who on earth is investing? And I must admit, I mean, the uh, the list of who's investing does look a bit like a who's who of previously exited unicorns. So it seems, uh, it seems like a really interesting story. Um, Jess, any thoughts? Well, firstly, for uh, any listeners who would like to know what James is talking about there, I direct you to issue number 92 of Health Tech Pigeon, Elizabeth Holmes under the hammer. But I think that it seems like at-home diagnostic testing is getting quite a lot of interest at the moment. Um, and I guess 
from my perspective, you know, perhaps it's following this trend of people being more willing to invest in their care, or not necessarily in their care, but in their health. So I, I definitely see a place for it. I think, you know, the all important question is, what is the efficacy? What is the accuracy? How reliable is it? And also, what are people going to be able to do with that data? And I think that that for me is a really big question, actually. What, what are people going to be able to do with this information? And I think it might have been something we spoke about previously with another company that are doing some other kind of diagnostic testing, I forget. But, you know, having having that information is one thing. But as someone who may not, like, who isn't a clinician and, and you know, you're, you're likely to be pretty well, I guess, informed in health and your own health but there could be some quite frightening information in there and i i wonder how i think there's a responsibility for these kinds of companies to make sure that there are safeguards and support in place to help people and counsel people through those results um, to make sure that they are fully understood so that if there is something serious it can be dealt with without scaremongering and to also, I guess, myth bust if something may appear to be serious, but actually, you know, it's relatively normal. But you might not know that as, you know, a lay person, you know, a non, non-clinical person. So I do think it's, it's quite interesting. And you look at, you know, Thriver, there's lots of fertility testing available. Um, that's, I don't know if it's like, you know, one drop, but it seems to be pretty are like pretty straightforward to do and, and increasingly common, um, even with like Chris nutrition and that kind of thing it it seems to be stemming from you know blood tests from a a, you know one drop from your i I think you know from that side of things perhaps it's actually going to be interesting to see the other kinds of companies that they collaborate with because i'm sure that this technology is not just useful in you know a direct to uh consumer capacity but actually there are so many other innovations that could use this data um and it solves a problem for them without having to create the, the technology to do it themselves. Yeah, and actually, you look at who else invested in it. A founder of a uh, teleclinic as well has, uh, has has invested as well as a few other pretty impressive angels too. This article was written by Kai Kai Nicole Schwartz um, at Sifted, and this is someone who we need to get onto this podcast. And you could, I'd, I'd quite be open to him being a regular guest on here actually because he writes really good articles on this stuff and and sifted i really like how sifted at the end of their articles do the sifted take so kai's written here a few things and i encourage you to have a, a read of this for everyone listening just just to know what what kai and the sifted team actually think of this but he raised a couple of things which have been touched on you know the regulatory barriers which are going to need to come across now but or they need to going to get across now but also um Obviously, they're releasing in Germany, so approval onto the onto Diga, uh, and you know that bearing fruit for you know Crownus Health and others are these uh, is aware going to go down the same route and actually get scale that way? Uh, it becomes these all become very interesting questions, um, and so yeah, definitely encourage you all to have a read of this article in Sifted. On to story number four. So I feel like we've done the we've done the appetizer, uh, the kind of warm up to um, the more opinionated section of Health Tech Pigeon. We're going to try. Are we going to try actually and be impartial? I don't know, but um, the HSJ has released uh, really, really 
uh, well, that, well, let's just say they're sitting on the fence with this article, I think. Um, the title is Steve Barkley is NHS leadership's worst nightmare. Tagline, never has a politician arrived in the post of health secretary trailing a worse reputation amongst NHS leaders, writes Alistair McClellan. So HSJ sitting on the fence here, Henry. Um, can you can you can you tell us what side of the fence they're leaning? It's tough, isn't it? Like uh, it's very <laughs> it's very down the line. This is the kind of editorial I would expect from a, uh, a publication that has to please both sides. Um, so kudos not, to them. No, not known for being divided. You know, <laughs> very specific opinions on things. Not least some interesting slash very good headlines. <laughs> yeah. I was a bit shocked, pleasant, like pleasantly shocked, like finding a fiver in an old like winter jacket when you go to put it on again. Like, oh, that's nice. If you want an interesting Twitter account to follow, follow Alison McClellan. If you want a blow by blow commentary on what is going on and his personal views, which we obviously see translated into HSJ headlines, follow him. It is well, well worth it. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's been weird, hasn't it, the last couple of days in politics? Like, uh, I saw it described as uh, a Shakespearean tragedy written by monkeys on typewriters, which I really like. <laughs> and they're not wrong. <laughs> that's, 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 how much can I say? But then they're, they're not wrong. Like, that's that's the thing. If you look at his voting record, and anyone can access their their voting record, and they uh, they work for you.co.uk, whatever it is. If you look at that. They've, they've got a point for them to go in that hard. I know it's an editorial and that gives them a bit more kind of freedom, but for them to go in that hard is is unusual. So if you look at what they've kind of based this on, let's ignore the voting record, ignore the politicians voting record, that doesn't matter. But if you look at what they've based it on, it was his time at the Treasury, um, which he, he was at the Treasury till September 2021. Um, and he is alleged, according to HSJ's senior sources, to, to cover my own back, um, lest Alistair McClellan come for me. Um, <laughs> he alleged that the NHS was a bottomless pit, resistant to change and unaccountable. Now, that's that's not, again, that's not wrong. Like, the NHS is, I think it is accountable, but there is a lot of money that goes into it and it's a little bit of a, a, a black box. So there are elements of that that are true. But the way that he approaches value for money, again, according to the Health Service Journal, is to sort of put the blockers on things um, that really need to be pushed through. So the Spectator, which they linked to in this article, was talking about how he decided that the vaccines weren't necessarily good value for money, which hindsight is twenty twenty, but is obviously just what like of course of course a vaccine for for a, pan, a virus that shut down the world's economy that's been proven to work of, of course that's good value for money like in what uh right so that and then simon stevens was like oh, i'm gonna do it anyway because clearly you have all the scientific nows of uh well one of the aforementioned monkeys so that worries me right and it the a lot i'm not gonna lie um and then the other bit that they talked about was, well, they talked a little bit about getting um, Sir David Nicholson out of office after the mid-staffs inquiry, which I personally think is an MP's role in that kind of that kind of scandal, like mid-staffs. So let's yeah. that's, that's put that to one side. That's, that's what they should be doing in this space. The big one, though, is, is staff raises. Right? So the Treasury have already said that there's going to be no more money for raises in the NHS. We all know there's been a pay freeze. We all know that a lot of NHS staff are 
hugely underpaid. So we all know that they're underpaid and the pay review boards are going to come back in the next couple of weeks with expectations of raises. And he's just going to say no. Like he's just mm. going to say no. And that's going to lead to people leaving the service. That's going to fuel an even bigger work. If you can get an even bigger workforce crisis, like we're pretty much at, pretty much at broken points now. I would not be shocked if there's strikes. Like look at what happened to junior doctors. And I feel like it's why would you on not? that scale. Why, why would you not strike at this point? Like, they, do, they deserve a pay rise. It's like two years of pandemic. COVID rates are up again. Hospitalization rates are up again. Deaths are up again. And it's just been one constant kick after another. And you've now got someone in place who will not do based on his previous behavior, which is not always a good judge of future kind of behavior, but he will not do the, the right thing, quote unquote, the right thing. That, if I was working in the NHS, would worry me. Um, and so for the HSJ to say that uh, the NHS is worst nightmare, fair enough. Let's just say it remains to be seen and that the HSJ has got a very strong opinion on what we're about to see. Um, I think it's important for all of us when we are talking about potential strikes and the negatives that might come of this. <sighs> Let's just let's just keep patience at the back of our well at the, at the front of our minds. Um, it's, I ju- yeah, I just hope they do too with the decisions they're about to make. I really do, but remains to be seen. On to the next story. Okay, on to the final story today, which is DigitalHealth.net looking at why cross-sector working will help ICSs meet virtual ward targets. I think the the biggest story here, though, Henry, is uh, ICSs have had a heck of a week. Um, talk to me. Have they, though? Have they? <laughs> ICSs sort of flopped into existence last week. Just like we all knew it was coming, right? Like It's been seven years since STPs, like Sustainability and Transformation Partnerships, uh, arrived, became a thing. Everyone was quite excited. Everyone was quite excited. I was quite excited um, because I don't have any hobbies. Uh, and then you had like the various waves of ICSs, like Wave 1, ICS Innovators, blah, blah, blah. Um, but none of them were ever purchasing bodies. So they were just this good idea with a chairman, um, which <laughs> seemed like a pretty cushy job, uh, chairman or woman. Um, and they weren't purchasing bodies and they continued not to be purchasing bodies. And then that whole COVID thing happened. Um and now they are purchasing bodies, or they sort of are, and they definitely will be in 12 months' time, but they pretty much are now. And it was it's just been such a damp squib. Like, this should be so important. If the focuses are on preventative health and community healthcare, then the only way to do that is with the involvement of every single stakeholder. So the council, all of your primary care organisations, your secondary care organisations, CICs, anyone who has a stake in that, which is what ICSs are meant to be, this should be should be revolutionary, but we've managed to create such a sense of meh around it that actually no one's that interested. And when the, we're talking about virtual wards as well, which again sort of raises the issues of like, is it just a buzzword, blah, blah, blah. ICS virtual wards are such a good idea because you've just got data feeds going from patients who are at home into everywhere that needs them. Their GP, the team in the trust who are looking after them, a CIC that might specialise in rehab for the elderly who've had hip replacements or something. All of that data gets shared and that's so important. And yet everyone's just going, yeah, yeah, ICSs are here. 
but um, I'm very tired at the moment. And mm. uh, Steve Barclay is the new new minister, so I, I I would love for people to get excited about this um, because then I'd have some friends. But also, I just I think it's really really interesting and exciting, and the potential for ICSs is, is huge. What far surpasses, with no disrespect to CCGs, the potential for CCGs. But there's just not there's no oomph behind it there's money behind it as well which is weird because where there is money you'll often find the private companies providing the oomph usually those are the people who are like look there's pots of money you can do this exciting stuff and we saw that in the way of one ICSs they did loads of really cool stuff like Greater Manchester Dorset they did these amazing things with those pots of money I don't know like behind the scenes that will be going on but we should be talking about this way more and it just flopped into the general consciousness last Friday, 95% of the public are never going to care what an ICS is. They just want healthcare to be better. But this is one of the vehicles that can make the NHS significantly more efficient and significantly better for patient outcomes. And I want people to be excited by it and they're not. I love that, man. And I think, you know, part of the uh, part of the value of this podcast is that there might be a couple of people listening that end up going to actually look at this a bit more and perhaps over time, as people do start talking about this more, people will actually get excited. Reading this digitalhealth.net article, you know, at the end, it's just a really nice paragraph, I think, at the end, where uh, where they say that many of us can share a story of a relative's unnecessary admission to or lengthy stay in hospital and the adverse impact it's had on their health. NHS England has set out the very powerful point on ICSs agreeing that integrated care models that engage health and social care teams to support people can be monitored and cared for in their own homes. So clearly this is a about a piece of policy to drive tangible change. And I think it's easy to roll your eyes and say, we've heard all this before. It's easy to criticize. I think what's more difficult is to look through that hay stack and find the needle and be like, actually, I think there is something good here. And I think that's what you've done in your analysis there is go, there are lots of policy decisions that are made. There are lots of things that are announced. You can easily get jaded by that type of thing. But I think what you're saying is here's a piece of policy that actually might make a real difference. And if people do pay attention to it and lean into it and work with it, we could be on the way to some actual change. Again, caveated with I accept that people are tired. I accept that people have heard all this before, but oh, we have to have a bit of hope, surely. Um, and I think you've you've laid out some reasons that we can. We do, and we've had so long to prepare. 2015, mm. no, 2017 or 2015, STPs were announced as the precursor to ICSs. Like that, what, the paragraph you just read is great, but. It's, it frustrates me that funding wasn't diverted into this before with the explicit intention of creating the plans to agree integrated care models. Yeah. Like, that's the whole thing behind this. And now you're like, here's some money. Uh, it's six, five, six wasted years is what frustrates me. And I mm. think that maybe we'll see them rebranded. Mm. Maybe, I don't know how they mm. might do that. But mm. I, I do think that this could be, should be, the future of how we look at care in this country love it and again recommend reading this article talks a lot about virtual wards and technology talks a lot about workforce challenges two things that do keep coming up um as we look at the news i must say like looking at the news each week in this kind of detail and talking about it 
do start to get an idea of new cycles and what's hot and words that people are using. It's it's really interesting this, but uh I really love it when a word comes back. Like it will like be in the cycle for like four months and it will disappear. And then you're like, hey, remote monitoring, long time no see. And like, <laughs> I feel like we're in peak, peak virtual wards right now. And so I'm yeah. thinking that by about December, it's going to peter out. And then maybe mid-March, it will just poof, right there onto digitalhealth.net and be like, hey, it's me. It's nice. It's like seeing an old friend. Thanks a lot, guys. Um, here we are analyzing the health tech news so you don't have to. See you next week.